Hi, and welcome to Career Illustrated. I'm your host, Jonathan Tanner. Each week, we explore fulfilling careers by inviting industry professionals to share their personal insights and experiences. This show is for you if you're looking to make a career change, just getting started in your career, or you're curious about different roles and industries that are helping to shape our world on a daily basis. So join us in discovering new opportunities and learning more about the inner workings of the world. Today, we're privileged to welcome Isabella Susignata, a global authority in the world of sustainability. As the global head of sustainability at Doe & Co, hailing from the vibrant city of Vienna, Austria. Doe & Co is a global gourmet leader, primarily serving airlines, global events, and restaurants, lounges, and hotels. Before joining Doe & Co, Isabella honed her skills as a management consultant with McKinsey & Co, where for five years, she worked across multiple functions with a specific focus on ESG and sustainability. In this episode, we deep dive into her multifaceted role discussing sustainability strategies and leading teams. We'll explore the unique sustainability challenges inherent to the hospitality industry and uncover what sparked her fascination with the field way before it was popular. We also delve into what traits Isabella values and prospective team members, the various methodologies adopted for emissions reporting, and a whole lot more. Trust me, this is an episode you don't wanna miss. Isabella, how are you? Great. Thank you very much for having me today. Broadly, I ask everyone this, what is ESG and sustainability to them? And I, I want to ask you too, because everyone gives a slightly nuanced or different answer. Yeah. And I think it's a very good question and a relevant one. Um, because for many people, sustainability can mean a different thing. And if you don't know what it means, some people start to dismiss it. It's like, oh, sustainability can be everything. But really, so I like to start, okay, what is sustainability to break down the term? Sustainability. It's the ability to continue doing what you're doing. And for the first time in the private sector, we're thinking about continuing to do what we're doing, not only from an economic perspective, from a profit perspective, but also about how can we continue doing business by considering also the environment, by considering societies. So how can businesses continue within a broader con context? So this is the, some people like to call it the triple bottom line where you don't only think about profits. Some people like to call it the change from a, shareholder perspective, like maximizing values for shareholders, to moving to a stakeholder perspective. So it can be all of these things, but it's essentially just how can we continue doing what we're doing in a broader context. And ESG is the tool to measure this concept, yeah. right? So if I, I like to compare it sometimes to, if I ask you, Jonathan, what is a substance? You will maybe say, okay, a substance is a, it's a type of matter. Like it's a little bit of an abstract term. But if I tell you what is the metric system, it's like, okay, you can measure substances by units. And it's the same with ESG. It's putting metrics behind the sustainability concept. Mm. I know, are the metrics mature enough to accurately and properly measure the sustainability concepts? Yes and no. Very consulting answer of me. Um, it depends. <laughs> it depends, yes. I mean, yes and no, really. There are some metrics that are very well established already that we know are relevant. For instance, energy consumption and then energy consumption per revenues that is energy intensity. 
um, or water consumption. And then there is the thing that most people know more about is like emissions, although calculating emissions is a bit of a foggy territory. So some things are very well established already, the metrics per se, but the regulatory landscape right now is changing and where in the EU at least, the EU Commission is trying to create a framework that all EU companies have to uh, abide to, to report their metrics. It's called the ESRS, European Sustainability Reporting Standard. So there is an effort to align on these metrics. And there have been a ton of reporting standards already. And it's the beginning of a journey to make things comparable. We're half there, half not. While we're on it, are you optimistic about us making it there and the metrics improving and like positively, not only accurately capturing things, but positively moving us forward on a global scale? It can be done. And what I think is necessary and Please don't pin me down on this 20 years ahead, okay? Like, this is my perspective right now. Uh, what I think is necessary is, on the one hand, a political will and a political push. And on the other hand, um, that capital markets are like the, the financial lines also make it possible. So what do I mean by that? Businesses, for them, it, at the end of the day, it needs to pay off for them to do better. So right. if there is an ESG rating and with, through the ESG rating, they get better credit conditions, best <coughs> belief, they will make sustainability possible. If there is a regulation and they have to do it because otherwise they lose their license to operate, best belief, they will make it possible. So yes, I think it's possible. And I'm optimistic about it. Um, yeah, but there is still a way to go. Um, so some companies are doing great things out there. And we can talk about examples also if you, if you want to. And yeah, some companies are a little bit, you know, very soft about, yeah, greenwashing or very soft about their initiatives. And... Yeah, but I'm looking forward to it being more streamlined as regulations are coming. No person ever has, says, has said they're looking forward to regulations, but I said it. <laughs> Before I move on to what you do, do you think there will ever be more synchronization or har more harmony between governments and the businesses to push this? Because you say, like, if there's regulation, they have to do it, they'll do it. If there's incentive from the business perspective, they'll do it. But... Could there ever be, is there a situation where there would be both um, working together and thus making the companies want to do it, not just for the bottom line, but for the stakeholders as well? Yeah, that's a really good question. I think that would, from my understanding, at least that would kind of be the holy grail, right? Because right now regulation is moving into one direction, but the business realities are very different. For right. instance, with the reporting, regulation is expecting to report, I don't know, a hundred metrics or something. And then many businesses that are not, okay, Unilever or Danone, you know, all these huge businesses, maybe they don't have the capacity or the IT capabilities even to measure some of these metrics. And that's just one example of how business and government are not talking to each other enough, it seems. And so can, they, can there be harmony? Um, 
Yes, there can be, certainly. I mean, if I, I guess if I was the person to solve it, yeah, I would be, a, <laughs> I was, I'd probably be in lobbying or something. <laughs> and then, Putting the consultant ba hat back on. Yeah. Yeah. But yeah, with closer stakeholder engagement between public and private sector, I guess that's a, a very typical problem with many topics. But yeah, I'm hopeful. I'm optimistic about it. Maybe tell us a little bit about D&Co and what the company is looking to accomplish from a sustainability standpoint. Mm -hmm. So D&Co is an, it's a catering company or it's, one can also say it's a gourmet entertainment company because it does everything. I mean, yes, at the end of the day, you get a gourmet, exquisite food, be it on the table, at the football match. We were now in Qatar for the FIFA World Cup. Right now, the ATP is happening in Madrid, matter of fact, where you are. Maybe you, maybe you got the ATP vibes. It's the tennis match. Or mostly the bread and butter of Donko is airlines. And I mean, we can, we can do this exercise if you want to. So except for Ryanair and, and EasyJet, just name an airline. And I tell you, we're catering to them. So um, Emirates? Emirates, yes. Okay. Let's go. One, two no. more airlines. Um, Delta. Delta. Yes. One of my, yeah, one of my favorite airlines, actually. I'm bold enough to say it because they're very much about politics. I have friends that are also obsessed with Delta. So that's good. Um, and then Turkish, Turkish Airlines. Tur yes. So Turkish, one of the biggest clients, of course. And with Turkish, we have a joint venture, but Iberia. British Airways, JetBlue, okay, you said Delta, Canada Air, Singapore Airlines, uh, you know, like so many airlines, wherever you are, you can find Doenco food. And moving, so what we're trying to achieve from a sustainability perspective, um, so we have, our strategy is along five pillars, emissions, waste and circularity, supply chain, nutrition, so like customer nutrition and well-being, and employee development. So there is these five things and we conducted the materiality analysis and we're trying to get the, for instance, emissions reductions, increase of employee development, et cetera. I want to say one of the biggest things, which is not only doing co-specific, but for the industry is the waste. So waste is a big issue and there is a lot of regulation around there. I mean, the airline industry is, is highly regulated and how to deal with international waste is an issue, and then how to educate customers to, to use the products in a certain way so that waste can be minimized. And so I will say out of the five pillars, improving our waste profile is the, for me at least, the top priority. You know, the classic 80-20 Pareto rule where um, you name things, and I'm like, ah, so is waste the one that is driving the majority of the um, sustainability issues within this uh, within this sector? And then the only reason I ask is because, you know, I always hear about emissions, 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 not really waste and circularity or even supply yeah. chain, unless we're now talking scope three emissions, for instance. But um, can you explain what circularity is in, in relation to waste? Yeah. So let me just maybe address the emissions topic Please. for a second. Please. Emissions is name of the game. Climate change is what people think about when they think about sustainability, right? And it is a very important topic. 
but now we are in our business line uh, in our like business industry we're not the high emitting industry we're not the petrochemical company that leads so much energy to produce a product we're not an airline company that uses so much uh, of their fuels you know so yes emissions is of course a thing for us also but in relation to other industries is not the biggest biggest and so answering the circularity part of the question so i think the simplest way to think about it is so we are used to having a linear materials uh, trajectory you take a virgin material you produce something out of it you you then you buy it you consume it you throw it away it goes to the bin buy see you never never think about it ever again and within a world of scarce resources which were which is becoming ever more present to us um the circularity concept becomes more important because how do we make something out of limited resources out of the resources maybe that we have already used so it so it means you take a material you produce it you consume it and how do you create value how do you, again out of this previous waste material so an example can be for instance now for me relevant food food waste right you can and i try to make very tangible examples so that everybody can like can that, get yeah. value out of it so okay you grow a potato you make the potato into chips somebody eats it they're super happy about it but they leave a little bit of of, of scrap over and then all the potato waste comes together. You can either throw it away into the landfill and it creates methane gases and all of these things. Or maybe you can compost it and you can use it for agricultural uses. Or maybe you can give it as feed to um, give it as feed to animals. So again, it is generating value for another part of the economy. So this is on a very basic level, the whole idea of circularity, creating value out of something that was previously waste and with this closing the loop. And then I did want to actually touch on two others of, so nutrition, how, how are you targeting nutrition? Because when I think about this, I would assume, let's say Delta says, hey, these, these are the items that we want to source from you. Would you would you then go and look to make them as nutritious as possible, or would you actually come back and say, "Hey, looking at you know the world leading forums in these specific areas, we would recommend these." How, mm-hmm. how are you focusing on nutrition? Mm-hmm. So, if a customer comes to us and say, "Please make some food for us," our first priority so far has always been making the most delicious food. Okay, right. Yeah. So. It was, um, it needs to taste the best at every point in time. But now, as sustainability is becoming a key characteristic of gourmet and of luxury, um, we're also looking into more components such as nutrition. So, and, and as there is more awareness for seasonal foods, vegetarian meals then the 14 allergens like there are so many so many nutritional trends that are going in nutrition we're already doing actually quite well because um we cook with fresh ingredients Mm. you will actually see chefs in their white coats cutting the ingredients 
mixing the sauce together and putting it on a plate, right? It's simplified, it's huge productions and no shade to the competitors. However, <laughs> um, other airline catering companies, they are more about logistics. They take frozen food, they assemble it and it goes out. So our nutritional profile already is really good. And when I think about nutrition, the thing that I would like us to go to the next step is, like you were saying also, where do we source it from? Okay, is our supplier from around the area? Is our palm oil maybe deforestation free? Is our meat deforestation free? Like all these additional factors that come with having a meal. And we don't use so much salt or sugar, so we use a lot of natural sweeteners. I'm very happy that this is not one of our concerns. What was it that initially drew you into a career in sustainability? I mean, even in McKinsey, right, you chose to be within that practice when you could have done a dozen other things. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, yes. And so... Again, it's a good question and I'm risking to be a little cheesy and cliche about it, but honestly, it kind of started with, I was a little girl, essentially, <laughs> <laughs> and there's all these, there's some narratives that have been going on for a while. The bees are dying and the oceans are full of plastic and the coral reefs are being bleached out, all of these things. and. When you hear this, I was, I was thinking to myself, I'm going to save the world. I'm going to do it. I don't know how, but I'm going to do it. So then this whole concept of sustainability came up. And when I started at McKinsey, yeah, I had to do different things. I had to do some restructuring projects and some process optimization. Why? Because it hasn't been like this, like now that clients are super happy to take money into the hand to pay expensive consultants to work on sustainability. You know? right. What is that even sustainability? Like some fluffy stuff. And so I had to bite the bullet for a while and do things that I, I mean, now I can say it, I've left McKinsey, things I really didn't care about at the beginning. Right. And I moved into the sustainability practice on something that is called a solutions path. So you're kind of an expert, like it's an expert path in there. And I was told also, Isabella, you should stay on the consulting path and it will get you more exposure. It's better for your career. For career. And I said, no, I don't, I don't want to do it. I'm, I'm ready to take whatever status hit or so it is. And because I, I want to work in sustainability and this desire to yeah as again as cliche as it may sound make the place a little bit make this world a little bit of a better place it's what drew me to it and it just is perfect that i'm in a generation where the economy is moving with that trend it does make me wonder what was it like in vienna so i, I know very little about vienna and austria so were you feeling the effects of climate change or was it just, you know, seeing on TV or reading online, the coral reefs are dying, the bees are dying, um, tsunamis everywhere? You overhear it in conversations and mostly that, overhearing it in conversations, seeing it in the news when my parents 
are listening to the news. Mm -hmm. But I will say, of course, whatever I'm saying is anecdotal evidence. But yes, I do notice in Austria a big difference for us. Skiing in Austria is a big thing, right? And if you see the skiing slopes from year to year, I mean, it's such a sad sight. Really, it's it's one centimeter away from skiing next to a butterfly because everything is so green in winter. Oh, it's such a first world problem for me to say, oh, our skiing slope, they are, um, you have so little snow for skiing. And of course, in in Austria, we're very privileged that the effects of climate change don't concern us that much, right? And I think this is part of the problem that the economies that contribute so much to the climate change are not the economies that suffer from it. So for instance, now, and please take it more like on a higher level than what I'm saying, but so for instance, Climate change can be felt in more, so where the river deltas are, for instance, in Bangladesh or mm. so, you know, or in like coastal areas, this is where you can feel it more. Or the, the maybe some fishing economies where they can see, okay, the fish that they were fishing for are depleted more. But the areas where you can feel the effects of climate change more are mostly or often lower income areas where unfortunately often the voice is a little smaller so yeah we do feel something in austria we can't go skiing so much anymore but in comparison to what the actual effects are i think the the spotlight needs to be shined somewhere else as the global head of sustainability what is your role specifically and what are you doing? I would split it up between there is a content element and there is a people management element. And of course, like the content element, it's about developing a strategy based on trends, based on internal capabilities, and then working with internal stakeholders. So people within the company to define initiatives together in a co-creational approach. I can't believe that I'm still using the lingo, but it you can't punch the consultant out of me. Yeah, but co-creating co-creating with the business units are like, okay, what are initiatives that are feasible for you? So okay, there's the content element and then yeah, like I said, there's a large people management element. So hiring the right people, you know, managing the people, keeping them motivated around you, taking away some skepticism of some business units also, because of course, everybody's tied on budget. And then Isabella comes around the corner and says, hey, we want to have <laughs> renewable energy. <laughs> and so, yeah, taking away skepticism. And this is this is also an emotional exercise. This is like a little bit hand-holding and therapy also. So my responsibility is developing the content and then operationalizing the content by managing people is what I would say in a nutshell. I don't gotcha. know if it's true or if I should go. Well, no, yeah, let, let's dive into it then. So 
thinking about, let's start with the content piece. So um, thinking about the five buckets that you talked about earlier, so waste and circulation, emission, supply chain, nutrition, and then employee development. Did you help co-create these five? Um, how were you involved in like the prioritization of these? And then switching over to the management piece, how are you managing the people and team to go out and execute on these, these five initiatives? Yeah. So the first part of the question, so how I was involved in prioritizing this? Yeah, the, the creation of these initiatives and then prioritizing them, yeah. Yeah. So I will say I have the, the luxury that I can make the agenda as however I want, and then I can work it out with the board. And if it makes sense to them, then they say, yeah, let's go. So... I prioritize it based on the experience I have gathered at my previous role in consulting. So for instance, I mean, how I prioritize it is I do a materiality analysis. I figure out what do different institutions consider important in our industry because I could have chosen anything, no? You can say, okay, data privacy is important. You can say different elements of air pollution. You can, like, there's so many components of sustainability, but they are with this materiality analysis. And then it's really going into the unit. So for instance, what unit can I take as an example? In the US, units waste is a little bit of a bigger topic than it is in Europe. It means in the US, we will prioritize waste initiatives, but waste can be cons in 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 Spain, for instance, the waste challenge is different than it is in the U.S. In the U.S., we want to work on refining our production volumes. And in Spain, we want to refine our uh, production method, right? So the one thing is... So this is how the item prioritize with the units. We go inside and we think about, okay, why do you think waste is being generated here? And then they tell me, okay, because of their maybe cooking methods or cutting methods or inventory methods, et cetera. Or they say, okay, it's because of data challenges, figuring out how many passengers we will get, um, having enough time to prepare it, but so Doenco always wants to be prepared, always wants to be able to serve all customers. And so sometimes there can be a tendency to maybe produce a little more just to make sure that all customers are happy. So finding these intricacies, how I prioritize them with the people on the ground, with interviews, with conversations, so what does your day-to-day -day look like? Or, or give me kind of like a week-to-week -week overview of your, your mm -hmm. life. Yeah. I mean, I can, I can give also a little bit of a day-to-day -day component and also week-to-week. -week. So my days are very varied, as many people will probably say. But I like to have two constant points. So one constant point is every day at 9.30 a.m., I will have a check-in with my team. So the team, they have like monthly or quarterly goals. And then they're broken down into weekly goals. And then every day together, we say, 
what do we want to achieve today? What is in the way of achieving it? Uh, what are questions that I have? Okay, we do this half an hour check-in. And then it really can be anything. I mean, today I had the conversation with a photovoltaic supplier. Yesterday I had a conversation with, um, with the waste AI analytics tool, like how do we analyze where all our waste comes from? Then another day I have a conversation with an ESG reporting tool. So it's a lot also of finding suitable partnerships. So this is the engaging with the external parts. Then another part of my day-to-day is every day I will speak to some of our internal stakeholders, be it the purchasing department to figure out together how can we integrate sustainability criteria in our purchasing decision-making and maybe switching up then some of our products. What if we don't use this paper? for all our menus that is not definitely deforestation-free certified, but we use another paper that is deforestation-free certified, for instance. And so checking with my team, working with external stakeholders, working with internal stakeholders, and then more towards the late afternoons, evenings, I like to have the my private working time so it's like okay i get my head into the screen <laughs> and either learn about the newest trends now i'm learning a lot about regulation of course or working out some content pieces so back in the days it was working out the strategy now it is working out the report so yeah i'm more like in the evenings or later afternoons I like to take this, especially when I feel that nobody else needs me anymore. Given that you're in Vienna and you're working globally, uh, or you're the global head, what are your working hours like? Especially given that earlier you were talking about how it's a very fast-paced industry and a service-based. Yeah. Um, so... Also putting it a little bit into context, so coming out of consulting, you're kind of used to all types of working hours, right? But I will start anytime between 8 and 10. You know, if I come into the office at 10, I come into the office at 10. If I come into the office at 8, that's also fine. I set the agenda. And then I stay anytime between 6 and 9. And it really depends on do I want to work out that day? Do I have plans with my friends in the evening? Am I maybe just not feeling feeling it to stay any longer? But also for me, work and personal interest are so deeply interlinked that, yes, I will read up on the weekend on how to make an energy strategy. I will read up on public holidays in how... A country has achieved a zero waste program, or I will have some calls on Austrian public holidays with the with the American teams, for instance, because, but only the calls that really interest me, right? And because I'm excited about it and I want to hear about it, and but it's not like just putting it into perspective. It's not like okay, every day. It's just a beautiful day and the sun shines and the rainbow is out. Like some days I'm just like, why do I even have to get out of bed? 
and yeah I kind of still do it of course but yeah working hours specifically can range anywhere between 40 and 70 hours a week it depends really right maybe I'm taking an easier week maybe I'm right. taking a, a tougher week maybe it it's very much depends but I've moved definitely more towards the lower range now yeah it's a marathon not a sprint and it's it's a corporate company and not a consulting company right you you bring up an interesting point when you say like why do i get up out of bed and i know you're kidding a little bit but i am curious like you as an adult versus you as the little girl who wanted to save the world and now you're now you have a direct impact and hand in you know emissions and waste, et cetera. I'm guessing there are days that have to be pretty tough given what you're seeing, um, both within the industry and the broader market or the broad, yeah, the broader market. So what is keeping you going as you do this? Yeah. Some days are really tough. Of course, some people just don't want to hear about sustainability. Some people just don't want to change what they're doing. Why should they? They have been doing it forever the way they have. And it's also a big change management project. And what keeps me going is honestly the intrinsic belief that I'm doing the right thing. And it has taken me such a long time to work in private sector and work on sustainability. I've finally gotten there and I'm, I'm enjoying it. So I'm, I'm enjoying the ride. I'm enjoying that I got where I want to be. You have to imagine now sustainability is cool. Right. But when I started studying water science policy and management, people were making fun out of me. Like, ho, 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 Isabella, what are you studying? Potato science? <laughs> Literally. Yeah. And so, and biting the bullet and doing all of these projects that maybe I don't care about. And having gotten to the point where I do care about the work that I'm doing, makes it so much more pleasant really when these people say you gotta find a job you gotta find work that doesn't feel like work sometimes i'm thinking like yeah right okay thanks for nothing but um now noticing that the thing that i'm dealing with is what i want to be doing independently yeah of maybe working hours or so, you know, just makes it a lot easier to get up. How is success measured for you? Um, you're in this new role at this massive company. Like, let's say I ch we check in two year, a year or two from now. Like, what are some things that you would say, this is why I know I was successful? Yeah. And... Again, I mean, there is the very pragmatic thing around what is success. And then there is the more something where I'm emotionally attached to success. And the pragmatic thing, yeah, maybe it's not inspirational. I mean, I have KPIs, of course. And there are some, yeah, for instance, ESG ratings. If the ESG rating improves from, there are some rating agencies like MSCI, Sustainalytics, S&P, Refinitiv, CDP, etc., if the ratings improve, that is a success, right? And I will say, yes, makes me feel good to see 
a BB instead of a CCC, like triple C rating, have a double B rating. Yeah, it makes me feel good. <laughs> and But that is the less inspirational part of success, right? And then the more, with a little bit of an emotional com component, like when do I feel accomplished is when I notice that I've changed somebody's mind into something that I consider to be the right direction. For instance, a small thing, if I talk to a chef and they say, no, I don't want to change my roast beef into some quinoa salad or something like that. <laughs> Just because you, Isabella, come here and tell me that emissions are so much bigger when you have roast beef. And, but if we do a little like emotional massaging for a while and try to get together to a reason why maybe moving to a little bit more of a plant-based diet is better for everybody. And I noticed that some switch is happening where there is some openness happening. It's like, oh yeah, maybe we can make the beef part a little bit smaller and increase the asparagus there. And it's maybe not something that is, it's not like, wow, the big success, the millions are coming into the bank account. But yeah, when I notice people actually start to change their value system a little, that makes me feel, that makes me feel quite accomplished. Yeah, it's interesting. Well, two things. It's interesting you said that because you said your job is in change management and a company that is now having a new sustainability sector. I imagine that there is a massive mind. There's, yeah, you're, as you said earlier, you have to play a bit of therapist. Um, and then what, what also kind of sparked my interest is that like you're into the weeds that much. So I'm imagine now I'm envisioning a Excel sheet where you know, removing two ounces of roast beef and replacing them with six or let's say four to six ounces of asparagus or quinoa salad increase or decreases emissions by X. Um, and I think that's really cool. It's really cool to see. And then if you have it, I mean, we serve millions of passengers exactly. a year, right? When you put it on a scale, then it really makes a difference. I mean, just recently there we were working with an airline and we were showing them the carbon emissions per meal. And they were saying, wow, we have never seen that before. And then they were like, okay, we want to take this into consideration when we, when we design our menus with you guys. So with us guys, don't you? And noticing, okay, so when you inform your customers also and they want to make, adjust their decision based on it, that's really cool. And then maybe on one meal, you just saved um, one kilogram of CO2. But then on five million passengers, it makes it moves the needle at least a little bit. Absolutely. At least a little bit, yeah. And yeah, po poco a poco, as I say, a little while ago. Yeah. Yeah. So how do you approach this hiring for sustainability? Hiring for sustainability, it can be for sustainability, it can be for controlling, it can be for HR, but um, it, this approach that I have is I have a heuristic, what I'm looking out for, for people. They got to be friendly, they got to be capable, and they got to be trustworthy. And 
same same as for me, right? I need to be friendly. I need to be capable. I need to be trustworthy. It's not like a demand. It's also a, what I want to supply. And in German, it sounds a lot better. It's an alliteration. It's freundlich, fähig, vertrauenswürdig. Okay, sounds a little harsh maybe for some of the listeners. But this is what I'm looking for in a person. So friendly, if we sit next to each other for a significant time of our waking life, yes, I want to be able to to get along with you. And then capable, it's... Um, so the person also needs to have some expertise at least, right? If you are a reporting specialist, you got to know reporting standards. There is no point in, to some degree, I can train you up, no problem. I can provide, uh, we can go to some institutions and have you trained up, but you ha got to have like a little bit of a, of a baseline and you need to have some affinity to numbers to some degree. And so, yes, there is this, how much content do you know element in there that I'm looking out for hiring, but it's just part of the picture. And maybe that is not part of my uh, three components. It's a little bit outside. I need to notice that this person wants it. I need yeah. to notice that this person is, they're not clocking in, clocking out, and behind me, anything can happen. I need to notice that they are, have some intrinsic motivation to work in sustainability because I have it. And so, yeah, I think we then get along better if we are both motivated for similar reasons. So let's say I'm listening to this podcast and I'm like, wow, I'm sold. I want to join Isabella or I want to join the movement and try to help um, significantly improve the, the world in this industry. Any recommendations for breaking in? So breaking into the industry first, it's an amazing time to start working in sustainability. There is a huge talent gap and especially in reporting. And I think maybe reporting in the first instance doesn't sound cool and sexy, but one can really develop out of it because if you're the person who knows the data, who holds the data, you can point at the gaps. And so if you want to break into sustainability really quickly, if you have some ESG reporting expertise, um, the offers are just going to be raining in, right? Having this technical expertise. Specifically, knowing about the EU taxonomy, knowing about the European, European sustainability reporting standards, uh, knowing about SFRD, Sustainable Finance Reporting Directive. Like, if you know this, you're a hot commodity. And, but then you also got to be a little bit of a Swiss army knife. Mm. So having technical expertise, but knowing how to manage stakeholders because sustainability, it's not a siloed function. You cannot sit there and just like move your numbers around and look at, uh, look at some emissions there. You got to work with you got to work with procurement, with finance, in, in my industry, with hygiene, with, you know, operations, et cetera, everybody. So feel comfortable with managing stakeholders. And then, I mean, like with other roles, applying to roles, network doesn't hurt to 
and being creative about networking also. So if you find a company and you want to really work there, maybe you find the HR manager on Twitter, on Facebook or something like that, honestly, calling directly, directly showing them who you are. Um, I mean... Shout out to people looking for a role. I'm hiring also in in the US, in the UK, in Germany, in Turkey. So yeah, just putting it out there. So build sustainability specific expertise, know how to build your story, how you are capable of managing stakeholders and start networking. Now is the right time. Really, now is the right time. Demand is high, supply is low. Sustainability talent is hot commodity. I mean, you talked about, you talked earlier about, you know, creating strategies in your free time on the weekends and um, how there's a mixture of work and pleasure in sustainability for you. What are you reading and listening to to stay up to date on, on these topics? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I wish I could say I'm super academic and I'm reading The Economist every day. Uh, but that would be a lie. <laughs> and um, how I stay up to date with the newest sustainability trends or even old sustainability concept is I'm in conversation with people, with friends, and maybe they touch upon a topic and I completely fall into a Googling hole. And mm-hmm. I will then start reading up about the newest a nuclear technology and read an op-ed of the New York Times about why nuclear energy maybe is good and then they have a hyperlink and then I click into the hyperlink and it sends me off to some academic journal or honestly yeah I'm not ashamed about it but TikTok <laughs> and yeah, absolutely my TikTok algorithm really knows what I want to see and <laughs> Like everybody's TikTok algorithm, really. And um, I have found some cool companies like this sugar substitute company. And then I will text them. It's like, hey, I saw you on TikTok. Do, what, what are you doing? Are you looking for a business opportunity? Or there will be a message of, have you heard about this new thing that is happening here and there? And then I will start Googling about it. And mm-hmm. so it's more of some targeted searches based on my environment with friends or maybe in a meeting somebody has heard about um i don't know how to say it in english but warmth from the earth when you make a deep hole and then you get warmth from the earth in order to to heat a building for instance and this is i guess this is how i go with the times hearing what people say what is interesting to them diving into it as I get the information and relying on the social media algorithms to <laughs> to get me to to bring me on the right path, how are emissions recorded um, and how do you avoid double counting, especially on something like scope three so um you end up selling this roast beef quinoa salad to Delta. Mm-hmm. Um, for Delta, you would be a scope three emission line item. However, for you, your scope three emission line item would be getting the roast beef from the farm and getting um, the chips and whatever the food is 
from the original supplier to you. So how, how does that look going up the chain? Yeah. So maybe let's start with scope three is the trickiest emissions of all the emissions out there. And there's different types of methodologies to account for it. There's weight-based methodologies, like one kilogram of beef makes like, I don't know, 10 plus kilograms of CO2, more or less. And one kilogram of sweet potato only makes like 200 grams of CO2 emissions. And, and then there's the spent-based method and how much does something cost, but it's a little bit more volatile depending on how uh, inflation is going, for instance. And so there's different methods of how to count for it. And, and yeah, with different levels of certainty of how many emissions you actually, you actually emit. And then in scope three, I mean, uh, stop me if you already know it. There is like 15 different categories. I think there are 15, 12 to 15. And this is how you avoid double counting within the categories. So you will differentiate uh, investments from capital goods and you will differentiate upstream from downstream emissions so that you already have some type of sense, yeah, how not to double count. And then in order to account for scope three emissions and to not double count how you would have to do it, is to do life cycle emissions. So, so say the beef, actually a smaller part of the emissions are the transportation. A much larger part are the land conversion that happens due to beef, for instance. So yes, I mean, the companies have to do really a life cycle assessment throughout all of their, throughout all of their suppliers. And it's a really large data exercise also. And so having absolute certainty about the scope three emissions is really tough also. But I can, I can already tell that having scope three emissions, having an evaluation of it, it's becoming a hygiene factor. I see it across all industries, actually. Not all companies can do it for larger companies, because if they invest the resources into it, yes, it's more feasible. And I don't see how uh, SMEs, so small and medium-sized enterprises, will account for scope three emissions yet. I don't see it yet. But we're moving into that direction, definitely. Profit margins are relatively thin in the hospitality space. And correct me if I'm wrong on that. But with sustainability being a relatively new introduction to the industry and not necessarily a source of profit now or yet, is sustainability being viewed favorably or is it primarily viewed as a cost center to in the, within the industry? Yes, most companies still have sustainability as a cost center because it's more of a managing risk approach than value creation approach. Right. If you just use sustainability to do some branding efforts and to be compliant with the regulations, you're just throwing money at it and getting little financial return out of it. But if 
you move sustainability more into the value creation end, for instance, you do sustainable operations or you diversify your product portfolio over sustainability, this is where you can have bottom line effects. So for instance, easiest example, you consume 15% less energy. This is on the one hand sustainable and on the other hand, you pay 15% less energy. And especially now with increased energy prices, it's like a significant cut. But also on the social component, if you reduce your employee turnover, like your churn, then you reduce recruiting costs, you reduce brain drain, you right. increase the productivity of your employees, you increase then the potential output of it, of them. And this is again something that is a real also financial effect, positive effect for companies. I mean, there's so many opportunities out there and you can even take it one step further and say sustainability is part of our company DNA. And the best example of that is, again, Unilever or Patagonia. And so, for instance, Patagonia, they said that... I think 2022 it was. You know Black Friday, of course, right? I did. Yeah. So they said, okay, they don't want to participate in Black Friday and being like this fast fa fast fashion holiday. Um, for them, their slogan is, Earth is our shareholder. So what do they do for Black Friday? They say, all of our uh, profit that we generate on that day, they will go to support an environmental cause. And then what did they achieve? They expected to have 2 million revenues on that day. Can you guess how much they actually turned over? 10. 10 million, very good. 5X on one day. Why is that? Because people are craving purpose. People are craving also to identify with something that is yeah maybe that is intrinsically good you know and people want to know that their consumption behavior is make it's at least at least not damaging right so, and then patagonia really integrated this value into their company dna and is benefiting from it so yeah you can do sustainability as a cost center or you can really ride this sustainability wave that is out there on the market and position your product in a very attractive way and have huge top line potential and also cost potentials there. And yeah, there are some companies that, that, that did it also. And, and that's what I want to talk about. Have there been companies that have been able to um, change their entire business model to to be more sustainable and also go from this solely managing risk to value creation side of things? Yeah, yes, 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 definitely. And um, so my personal favorite example, and maybe I just then stick to that one for now, there is a company, it's called Orsted. Have, have you heard of it? I have not. Okay. So it's a, it's a Danish energy company. And the company used to be called Dong, right? 
Danish oil and gas company. And they were just an oil and gas company, but their previous CEO or like two CEOs ago or something, um, he understood that they are right now in, in a business field that doesn't have future perspective, oil and gas, right? And he then said, like, his name is Anders Eldrup or something. I'm probably butchering his name, but shout out to Anders. And he was saying that, okay, we need to change our business in order to become uh, future-proof. And I think it was like that. Don't pin me down on the numbers. But 85% of their money came out of oil and gas and only like 15% came out of renewable mm. renewables. And he was saying, okay, so, and, and the team, only 15% of our money is coming out of future-proof sources. We need to change it up. And essentially they were looking, what, what, what is our capabilities? What are we doing right now? Okay, we're doing a lot of offshore offshore oil. So how can we use that capability and switch it around and become a purpose-led company? They were saying, okay, offshore wind. We already have a lot of a lot of the things that we need in there. And now they're one of the largest offshore wind companies. And they started to build expertise and they started to do partnerships. They worked together with Siemens to develop wind turbines together. I mean, they threw a lot of money into this to, to upgrade their business model. And now they're a really good prime example of how you generate value out of sustainability. How long did this transformation take? Yeah, like 15-ish years wow. or 10-ish years. They started 2007, eight, like this initial CEO statement came like, okay, we're going to do something about this. And then I think 2017, they completely sold off their oil and gas production business to wow. focus entirely on renewables. Yeah. That's amazing. Cause it's so much harder to, um, in the, in episode six with Jessica, she was saying that it's very difficult to do these things after you've already, it's already been released into the world, right? It's a lot easier to come in and say, okay, we're going to build a sustainable company from the ground up. But when operations have been going on for decades or hundreds of years, in some cases, it's very hard to all of a sudden say, we could be sustainable now. Yes, of course, it's uh, hard to change something that is existing already. And this is where it's so important to have top management commitment. And when you listen to an interview by the Orsted uh, company team, it's not like, yes, we want to do it. Everybody was on board. Great. And it was an amazing journey. And that's it. Bye. It's just a Disney movie. And no, like there was skepticism. People didn't want to do it. I think some of the first wind turbines, they didn't even work. They mm -hmm. threw millions just into the toilet. And like, it's, it's, it's a bumpy journey, but yeah, it can be made and it can be worth it. I like to end every episode with a hot take and I feel like you've sprinkled a few here and there. Um, but I, I'd love to hear your hot take on the future of sustainability, uh, bro broadly, or even your thoughts on the future of sustainability as it refers to and impacts the hospitality industry. 
Um, or both. That's a hard one. Um, it's so hard for me to predict, and I don't like to make predictions anything above three years even. Pretty high level. Sustainability is here to stay. It's like the digital wave. If you're not, if you didn't figure out how to digitalize your life, then you are behind. And similarly, if you're a company and you don't figure out how to integrate sustainability in your day-to-day -day operations, uh, you will become uninteresting. That's how I see it, at least uninteresting to the new consumer wave that's coming. And um, that is on a more general level. And I think sustainability will become a lot more complex in its considerations because right now we're thinking about it pretty disintegrated, right? Okay, we think about emissions, we think about waste, we think about water. There are some overlaps. Ah, okay, so waste on the landfill generates emissions. But I think we will get to have a lot more a systemic view because there is a larger push into understanding biodiversity mm. and biodiversity is so complex. And I think if companies want to pioneer something and build expertise in something that is going to be hot in like five to 10 years, maybe, then they should start building expertise on how is my company impacting biodiversity on land, in the sea. And it's complex, a lot of moving pieces, but yeah. Moving from climate change more onto broader biodiversity is, I think, a no-regret move. I like it. I like it. Um, Isabella, thank you so much for our discussion today. I really, really appreciate it and learned a lot as well. Thank you, Jonathan. Thank you for for inviting me to, to have the interview with you. I also really enjoyed it. Thanks for tuning in to today's episode of Career Illustrated. If you want to access the episodes in a more organized manner or want to have input into future episodes and guests, head over to careerillustrated.co and join the newsletter. Thanks again for tuning in.